Our scripture reading this morning comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. And if you'd like to follow along with that, uh, it's on page 995 in the Bible, in the back of the pew in front of you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. In a time where kings and rulers were mostly buying for dominance, and the common man was oppressed by the thumb of Rome, a disunified Israel held on to hope for their promised Messiah to rescue them. However, no one knew what to expect. Some expected a warrior who would crush his enemies with the sword. Some expected a king who would establish a government over all. Who came? No one expected. Born a carpenter's son, this man was humble yet authoritative, unpredictable yet reliable, compassionate yet bold. The Messiah's entrance was not a warrior campaign which forced submission. It was an invasion beginning in the hearts and the lives of those he encountered. This is the story of the true Messiah emerging amidst the pretenders. This is the story of Jesus turning the world on its head. This is the story of the King and his kingdom. Alright, new series today, The King and His Kingdom. Oh, is anyone else warm in here? I'm a little bit warm. I don't think I'm going to make it any longer in this jacket. <laughs> I put it on this morning because I thought it was going to be cold outside, but then I haven't been outside. And the light's up here. Whew. So y'all don't mind, do you? <laughs> I might pass out otherwise. <laughs> you wouldn't want that. Or maybe you would. It'd be a shorter sermon. Um, you know, we don't think much about kings and kingdoms anymore. Nowadays, uh, kings and kingdoms are just about extinct, it seems like. But that wasn't the case for most of humanity's time on this planet. That was the predominant government. But uh, today, you know, our kings, let's just look at some modern kings. And uh, how did that get in there? (laughs) My goodness. No, that's, uh, that's, that's our crazy youth pastor. Um, I just threw that in there because, <laughs> just to embarrass him, and because he had a birthday just a couple of days ago. So. Oh, okay, I won't torture you with that anymore. Uh, 
Modern kings. <laughs> the true story here. Uh, we, we, we call musicians kings, don't we? We've got the king of rock and roll. Everyone calls Elvis the king of rock and roll. Whether you knew it or not, Michael Jackson's called the king of pop. And uh, the king of blues has the last name king, B.B. King. And uh, so we call them kings. Sometimes we call athletes kings, like King James here with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, sometimes you might think of the only time you see a king is when you're playing cards. Or, um, or of course, everyone's favorite kingdom is the Magic Kingdom now, right? And, uh, or if you want to get more literal, you might think about Great Britain. You might remember your U.S. history classes with the guy, you know, probably had a picture in your textbook of King George over there. And, uh, of course, he was king when the Revolutionary War took place and, and all that. So that doesn't exactly give us warm, fuzzy feelings as Americans. Um, but then, you know, there's the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, that we see. And for most of us, or at least a lot of us in this room, she's the only monarch that we've really been aware of in our day and time. And so, you know, we're used to the Queen thing instead of the King thing, for that matter. Um, you might be aware that countries like Saudi Arabia still have kings, but again, for most of us, that probably doesn't create warm fuzzies in your heart for kings either. Uh, really, about the only king that most people have any use for uh, anymore around these parts is the Burger King. <laughs> is that about right? But uh, there is another king and another kingdom that needs to be on our radar, and and you have to understand that when the message of this king and his kingdom came to this earth 2,000 years ago, that's all there were was kingdoms. And he wasn't just giving a, an illustration. He wasn't just saying, uh, hey, maybe you've heard of a, a kingdom. Uh, well, let me talk to you about a new kind of kingdom. He was... I mean, this was revolutionary. This was like saying, more like saying, hey... I'm bringing in a new nation, a new world power, a new, I mean, whatever we would call it today. Um, but it was a kingdom. And so we need to look back, since we're 21st century Americans, and we have all of our preconceived notions about how governments ought to work, and we're pretty unfamiliar with kings and kingdoms since they've gradually become pretty much extinct over the last couple hundred years. Let's just look at some basic facts about kingdoms. And as we do, you're gonna, your, your Americanism is going to cringe a little bit, okay? And, but just subdue that inner George Washington that wants to leap out and, and rebel. And uh, let's just try and put ourselves in the shoes because this is, again, this is the reality for most people throughout most of history until recent times. Uh, some, just some facts about kings and kingdoms. Kings are born, not elected. All right? We're used to electing our officials. Kings weren't elected, they were born. All right? So, I mean, sometime way back when, uh, some rich folks might have selected which one of them was going to be the king. <laughs> but that was all the selecting. From then on, it was just you were born, or else you overthrew a king. Ah, kings do the ruling, not the majority. We're used to the concept, at least, of majority rule. And if you don't like them, you just, the majority votes them out. And then you get someone else in. All right? so, but that's not how it worked. The majority didn't rule just the king. 
Kings take crowns and thrones for life, not offices for a term. <laughs> it's a whole, whole different ballgame. They make the laws. They don't just sign them at a fancy desk. Okay, they, they make them. It's like they're, they're like Congress and the judicial system and the president all wrapped into one. It's, they're the whole deal. Uh, kings rule. They don't represent what I mean by that, in a sense, they represent the kingdom to other nations and stuff. In that sense, they do represent, uh, like the next one says, they're the identity of the kingdom. The kingdom's identity is wrapped up in, the, in its king. And they do represent the kingdom as far as foreign affairs and that kind of thing. But not in the sense of, hey, I elected you, you're supposed to represent me out in Washington, D.C., and, and you're supposed to kind of vote as the people that elected you want you to vote, and, and you're representing us. Uh, not in that sense. And kingdoms exist for their kings. The kingdoms belong to the king. Therefore, you know, the king would look at taxes as him redistributing his wealth. You know, you... Your property is your property, but it's pretty much the king's property. All of it's his stuff. It's his kingdom. Kingdoms give honor to their kings. Suppose that's what they're supposed to do, not demand their rights. And the whole demanding your rights thing really just kind of came about with uh, something we call the Enlightenment now. Uh, when a guy named John Locke started writing about things like the rights, uh, universal rights to life, liberty, and uh, property which then became what we know famously as the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that's just a like 200-year-old concept. <laughs> Before that, you know, you just you honored the king. You didn't go say, "Hey, I've got rights, Mr. King," you know, because as far as he was concerned, you really didn't have much in the way of rights. Kingdoms, of course, just like nations, have unique values, customs, currencies, missions, uh, more often than not, they seek to expand or at least defend their territory. Most kingdoms that you read about in your history book, you know, they're, they're trying to win some more territory, expand their kingdom. And uh, so they're fighting against another kingdom and so forth and so on. These are just some basic facts about kingdoms. And again, you know, as, as 21st century Americans, this is kind of foreign and you might even say well why would we even do a whole series on kingdoms uh, isn't that just an illustration that Jesus used to kind of talk about what he was doing but I would suggest to you that it's not okay to ignore the kingdom and talking about the kingdom is really should be central to what we're doing and, and for some reason I feel like in a lot of places at least the church and Christians have kind of ignored this whole concept of kingdom. Maybe just because we're not used to kingdoms and kings anymore. And so we prefer to just talk about what Jesus did um, on the cross for us. And uh, forgiveness. And, and that we'll someday be in heaven with him. But that's just a part of the story. And the center of the story, at the very center of it, as I hope you'll see even as we get through this introductory message today, is a king and his kingdom. That was what it was all about. That was not just a parable he told or an illustration he told. The kingdom was what all the illustrations and all the parables were about. 
If you read through your, your uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll especially, like in Matthew, I mean, every parable starts with, the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. Let me tell you about the kingdom. So we can't ignore it. And we need to explore it. What, what does it mean, a kingdom? What does it mean that Jesus is a king? What, what's the nature of this kingdom? I want to suggest to you, as I've just been sharing, that kingdom is actually the central theme of the gospel, and I'll take it even further, the central theme of all of scripture. And developing a kingdom mindset should be our central aim as Christ followers. And we'll talk about what that means and what that looks like in this series. And our goal, yes, is to, that each of us would grow in, in having a kingdom mindset. This is why Jesus came. To set up a kingdom. And the kingdom, it's not like... In some ways, it's like all those facts that we just had up. About the kingdom. About kingdoms. In some ways, you can see, even as you look at them. Yes, Jesus and his kingdom, it's like that. It's like that. It's like that. But in most ways, when it comes especially to the values of this kingdom. And the way it operates. It's completely upside down from any kingdom this world has ever known, modern or ancient, than any nation this world has ever known. That's why I really like that opening graphic because it has the castle upside down and it reminds me every time I see it that Jesus' kingdom is an upside down kingdom. And we'll talk again more about that as we get into this series. But today, I just want to back up all the way to the very beginning of the story. It's going to be kind of a unique message. And pray for me that I don't get bogged down because we've got about 45,000 things to get through here. Uh, So, buckle in your brain. And here we go. We're going to start at the very beginning, like I say. And there was a time when God was king. He reigned as king. The creation was all just as he wanted it. Just as he had created and intended for it. Everything was going as it should. He create when you read the creation account as he created each thing, he said that each thing was good. And when by the time he was done, he said it was very good. And things went on in a good and very good fashion up until the point that mankind decided that we would rather be our own king, make our own rules, do things our own way. That's the essence of the fall of man, as it's often called. So new plan. God goes back to the drawing board and he approaches a man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you I want to create a new people. A new nation that's going to be my nation through which I'll bless all nations. And in fact, here's just some of what he shared with Abraham as he made this covenant to create a new people. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will surely bless you and make your descendants 
as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So the king had a new kingdom. The story goes on. This kingdom grew numerically, number of citizens expanded tremendously, but they were enslaved in Egypt. So God sent Moses, right? And we've seen the story on the big screen a few times. They like to make that story of Moses and the Exodus. And and Moses goes and through uh, God, through Moses, delivers his people. They head out into the wilderness. And through Moses, God gives them commandments and rules. And so the kingdom gets its rule of law. And through Moses, he gave them also a map for the tabernacle, which would later become the temple. This would be their place of worship, and this would also represent the place where God's presence lived, the place where he often met with Moses and gave his instructions. This was, in essence, the throne on which God sat to govern his people. He also gave them a promised land, and through Joshua and Joshua's leadership, they took that promised land, and the kingdom had its boundaries, a physical place to live. The people still were going through that, this cycle, you know, constantly, this whole time, of rejecting God and then coming back to God, rejecting God and coming back to God. And uh, when they would reject God, things would not go well for them. And when they came back to God, then God would send what are called judges in the Old Testament to deliver them back and to regain their territory and to regain some peace and their identity as his people. But when eventually they came to the last of the judges, a man named Samuel, who was a judge in Israel for a long time and a prophet. And they told Samuel, we want a king like all the other kingdoms have, like a man king, not just a God king. Uh, we, want, we want to look like the other kingdoms around here. And so we have the beginning of kings. In fact, here's what it says in 1 Samuel 8, 6-7. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord, listen to what the Lord told Samuel. Listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. And you can just hear God's broken heart in this. So they take Saul as their king. And that didn't work out so good. So God handpicked David. Said he was a man after his own heart. And and the image, the stories that we have of David are so informative to and just illustrative of God's kingdom. And, and what Jesus would do later. And we read about David and we find a guy who was anointed long before he became king. He was anointed as a king. And he was, had to run for his life before he ever became king. And when he did get crowned king, he was only crowned as king of part of the kingdom. And then later he established Jerusalem as the capital and, and reigned over all the tribes of Israel. 
And eventually, he established peace. He established a kingdom that was really felt like a kingdom. They had their boundaries and their enemies respected them for the first time. And he mapped out where the temple would sit on Mount Moriah. So the kingdom felt more like a kingdom than it ever had before under David's reign. And here's the promise that God made David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But alas, the people of Israel, we know, still turned away from God. And the kings that followed David and his son Solomon, the kings that came after them, many of them were despicable in their treatment of the people, in their treatment of God, in their worship of idols. And so, exile. Babylon came. And other empires. And they destroyed. They ransacked Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. They tore down the walls. They took the people out of Israel and and off to a foreign land. And it seemed as though the kingdom had been obliterated off the face of the earth forevermore. But God sent prophets. Prophets with a very interesting message. That it wasn't done. That just because the kingdom had been destroyed as God had promised them that it would if they didn't shape up and turn back to him. Even so, it wasn't over. And we have men like Isaiah with messages like this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, which is a name for God's city, often used interchangeably with Jerusalem. Your God reigns. Or in other words, your God is king. This is a prophetic statement, a prophecy of what was to come. And Isaiah said, Listen, you watchmen, lift lift up, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. For when the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. And it's this image of God himself coming to reign as king. In Israel. And so Israel begins to get this hope that one day God Himself would come and reign and their kingdom would be reestablished forever and take back its place of prominence that it should have as God's people. Other prophecies, like the one that Larry read for us just a little bit ago, say, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous. And victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What an interesting picture. Fast forward a few hundred years, and we come to a place in history where there was a really big king. We know him as Caesar. And Caesar owned pretty much everything. This was also a time when the Jews were back in their boundaries, back in their territory, back in Israel. In fact, the temple had been rebuilt. The walls had been rebuilt. 
It was as though they, had, they even had a king of the Jews named Herod. And yet, the kingdom and its temple and even its king all belonged to Caesar. And the Jews with their pride-filled history and heritage didn't accept that very well. Movement after movement, uprising after uprising took place. They would rebel against Rome. Rome would put it down. They didn't like the idea of someone else reigning over God's people. And so still there was this hope that started with the prophets that someday God himself would come and deliver them from Rome. And they would deliver them from any foreign power and God himself would reign. And his presence would again fill the temple as it had so long ago. Then enter Jesus. Born a king in the city of David. Royal heir to the throne of David, the Gospels tell us. And yet, no one in that day would have expected God's coming to reign. They wouldn't have expected that story to begin in a shed, in a feeding trough. And yet the people to whom the good news was first delivered, the shepherds, the wise men, Mary and Joseph, they worshipped him as a king, did they not? From the day he was born. Fast forward into his life a little bit, and we read about the baptism of Jesus by his cousin, John the Baptist. And this was very much, it reminds me of the anointing of David. This was like the anointing of Jesus' ministry. And God spoke and he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And from that place, Jesus went out into the wilderness and fought his first battles that we have recorded with the Satan, the accuser, the prince of darkness. Doing one-on-one battle. Not that different, I guess, from a David and Goliath kind of battle. One-on-one. And from there in the wilderness, after Jesus won that battle, he began to teach. He began to go from village to village teaching. And what did he teach? Matthew 4.17 comes right after that wilderness Experience, which comes right after the baptism. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And you read, following that, message after message from Jesus about this kingdom. This kingdom. Not only did he teach about it, but he performed miracles. And these miracles were more than just Look at my authority. Look at my power. They were more even than just you know to draw a crowd. They were signs of the kingdom. Signposts that said, here's what my kingdom will be like. My kingdom will be a kingdom of justice where the wrongs are set right. This king will be a good shepherd. Not like some of the kings you've known. He'll care for his flock. And when they're not well, he'll care and he'll make it right. 
And at last, we come up to speed, to where we are here on Palm Sunday. And the king rides in. The last week of Jesus' ministry, he had been for three years or so, going from town to town, village to village, teaching about the kingdom, preaching about the kingdom, doing miracles as signs about the hope-filled kingdom that he was ushering in. And then, in this last week, he shows up at the gates of Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples, go to this certain spot, and there you're going to see this cult of a donkey. I want you to bring it to me. And they, you know, they go and they talk to the owner, and the owner, they tell him who sent him, and he says, yeah, take it. And Jesus rides into town. The exact image of what we've read a couple times already today from Zechariah 9, the prophet, saying that, look, Jerusalem, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you think that that was lost on people as Jesus entered those gates on a colt of a donkey? I mean, this passages like this were their hope as a people that God would again come and reign, that his Messiah would come and usher in a new reign with God as king, overthrowing Rome and reestablishing the temple. Do you think that it was lost on Jesus what he was doing when he told him to go get that cult of a donkey? I'm going to ride into town on it. You think it was lost on the, the religious leaders of his day that said, look at how the people go after him. And even told Jesus himself, make them stop, Jesus. To which he said, if they stop, even these rocks will cry out. That's a pretty bold statement, a pretty arrogant statement, really, if you're not the king. And the people, what did they do? They set palm branches down. They waved them and they set down their coats in the ground. It was a royal welcome as you'd expect if a king was riding through the gate. This wasn't lost on anybody. In fact, the people shouted, Hosanna, which means God saves. And they said, Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king of of Israel. And again, you have to remember everything was kings and kingdoms back then. And the kingdom of that day was Rome, and the king of that day was Caesar. The only other king that they could have been talking about or should have been talking about could have been one of the Herods reigning as a king of the Jews even though they didn't really have much power. But to announce a king any king other than Herod or Caesar was a big deal. Treasonous. Even. And Jesus rides from the gate to the temple. And he walks into the courts of the temple and he starts overthrowing tables and talking about 
what they've done to his father's place of worship, place of prayer. This whole scene, this is a king riding in. It was a clear message. It was not lost on anyone. And in that day, much like today, there were different ways that people took this event. Different ways that they took Jesus. Some of them thought, this is it. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to reestablish the kingdom. We're going to reestablish the temple. Look at what he's doing. He's clearing out all the greedy people. This is good. This is good, Jesus. You're on to something here. (laughs) Even some of his closest disciples. This was their heart's prayer. This is what they thought it would look like when God would come and reign. He would throw out Rome. He would cleanse all the corruption. And he would reign. And we shouldn't be too hard on them with our hindsight, 2020. <laughs> because for them, this is what they grew up here, and this is the message they grew up, that one day God would come and reign. And what that would look like, everyone thought was that he'd overthrow Rome, reestablish the temple, and, and Israel's place in the world. Other people included the religious leaders who thought he was a fraud at best, thought he was a a rebel rouser. They feared that uh, he would lead to destruction for Jerusalem and the country. Rather than, than saving it, they thought he would ruin it. And again, let's not be too awfully hard on them either because in a way they were kind of right. Forty years later, another guy starts a rebellion against Rome it looked similar in a lot of ways. And Rome did come. And they did tear down the temple and destroy it. Today, in our day, people take this story in different ways. They say, oh, no, no, no. The king stuff, that's not the way to look at Jesus. The God stuff, that's not the way to look at Jesus. He was a great teacher. He was a great, maybe even like a prophet or something, whatever that is. He was a, a philosopher. And, and he was, you know, we rank him amongst the great human minds and teachers of the, of the ancient decades and centuries and millenniums. He's, his stuff is worth living by, but all that other stuff is just kind of fanciful. And then there's other folks today who just say, no, you know, it's all just a fictional story that they made up. Christians and just to support their claims and their religion. But in that day and in our day, there are people who say, no, he's the king. He is God come to reign as king of his people. To set things right again as was intended from the start. One of the questions I had much of my life about kingdom things, and and maybe you do as well, is when is the kingdom? I mean, was the kingdom something that was here when Jesus was here? Is it something that's here now? Or is, is the kingdom, should we expect the kingdom to be something that happens at the end? You know? When he returns, 
And then, then he'll establish a kingdom. And I would suggest to you that the answer is yes. The kingdom was ushered in when Jesus came. And the kingdom is going to be when Jesus returns. But the kingdom is now, too. That may not make sense in your head. It didn't really make sense in mine. And in fact, I did a lot of reading about this as we've been preparing for this series. And I was reminded that this is really the way it always is with kings and kingdoms. And, and remember our story of David, anointed as king when he was just the youngest little boy that no one thought anything of in a family. And even after he was anointed as king, people that saw him probably didn't think, oh, look, a king. <laughs> you know, it's just a, a little boy. Certainly they didn't think he was much of a kingly figure as he was running for his life in the wilderness. Then when he was crowned king, he was just crowned king over two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And it took years before he moved to Jerusalem and, and set up reign there, set up his throne there and set up the temple there and, and ruled over all the tribes of Israel. And it took years still before there was peace to be had and the kingdom's boundaries were secure. This was a process. It didn't look much like a kingdom for a long time. And yet, he, no one would say he wasn't king <laughs> that time. Or that there wasn't a kingdom. It was just still in process. Similarly, similarly the king rode in. But there is more to come. Some of it we'll talk about next week. And some of it is still going on today. And so we'll hash this out more in the days to come. But what I want to ask you today, as we wrap up this kind of introductory message to a new series, is simply this. Is Jesus your king? And maybe more specifically, what citizenship defines your life? We're Americans. We are also members of this world that we live in, the world at large. In many ways, we're more a global society today than ever before, connected around the globe. I mean, even our, our church, we send our dollars overseas. And this world is very present. This world's way of doing things is very present. Uh, America is what's always in the news when you turn on the news or, or local news or state news. And it's easy to think that our citizenship is here. And in a sense it is. But I would call it our secondary citizenship. Our secondary citizenship is here in America. We're Americans. Second. Citizens of this world that we call planet Earth, second. Our primary citizenship, if we call ourselves Christ followers, should be in Christ's kingdom. Do you know that term Christ is not actually Jesus' last name? It's a title. 
a kingly title. Every time you say Jesus Christ, you're announcing his kingship. That's his position. So just, I want you to think about today and reflect on as we have our response time in a moment. Is he my king? To what extent is Jesus my king? And if you've made him anything besides your primary king, then it's as good as making him nothing. What citizenship, that will do a number on you, defines your life the most? Who are you first and foremost? Weigh that one today because the king has ridden in. We're going to do things a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to, we've begun to kind of expand our time here at the end of our services. And I want to invite you now to a time of response. And Ashley's going to come share a, a special song with us. You guys can come on up and get ready. And I want to invite you to a time of reflection over the next few minutes. There's going to be two songs and then we'll take the offering. And I want to invite you just to consider what God might be doing in your life this week, through the message today, through something else that's going on in your life. Maybe you're going through a hard time and you just need a time of quiet to pray. Take this time. If we come to church and we don't take the time to actually meet with God and talk to Him about what's going on and what is He trying to say in our hearts and in our lives, then what have we come to church for, right? And so I just want to encourage you um, to, to let the Holy Spirit do a work in your life. And you can pray where you're seated, but we've also, we're starting something that we're calling the response team. And it's just simply just some people who are willing to pray with people. And so each week... Now, someone at this point in the message, when, when we start the music, they'll come down and they'll sit on this front row and just be available. They'll just be available to pray with you if you want someone to pray with you. And so just come down and they'll, they'll meet you and pray with you. You know, all through the week you can pray to God anytime about the needs you're facing, but this is an opportunity and we have on Sunday mornings to be around other believers and to actually pray with someone who can pray with you. There's something special about praying with someone. That's different than when we pray alone. So I want to invite you to consider doing that today. This may be the best chance you have all week to pray with someone that cares. Let's pray together first. Our God, we together say that you're king. And we pray, Lord, that you would... Have your way on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us what it means to be a part of your kingdom. Lord, for those who are still not sure where you stand in their life, I pray that they would do some soul searching, that your spirit would knock at the door of their heart. Challenge them on this, God, and tell them that you are king. Ask them to decide what they're going to do with it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.